It's the purest gospel. Have you ever stopped to think why Martin Luther might have described Romans in this way? I hope by now you've taken the time to read through the book of Romans, hopefully in one sitting. The purest gospel. And that means the purest good news. The last few weeks I have either began my message or concluded my message by asking the question, do you view your faith as a treasure? I mean, if we really, if we really viewed our faith, what we believe is a treasure, the way, the truth, and the life, and what Jesus said is the only way to go to the Father, to get to the Father through Jesus, why wouldn't we want to be sharing that good news with those who are outside of a saving relationship with God? And so far, in the first 17 verses, things have been pretty positive. I mean, maybe Martin Luther was thinking along the same lines as John Stott, who hundreds of years later would say, Romans is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the Gospel in the New Testament. In fact, Stott goes on to contrast what Paul says with the teaching of a philosopher by the name of Rousseau, where at the beginning of his book called The Social Contract, Rousseau states that man was born free and everywhere he's in chains. Now you hear that a lot today. You hear people say, well, you just, you just need to break free of the, of the chains that are holding you back. But Paul, from Paul's perspective, as human beings, we're born in sin. We're born in slavery. But the good news is that Jesus came to set us free. In fact, our text last Sunday ended with the affirmation that contained within the gospel, what is found in the good news is that the righteousness of God has been revealed from the faithfulness of God for the benefit of our faithfulness. And the importance of this, as seen in the Habakkuk quotation from chapter 2 of Habakkuk that Paul uses, is that those of us who are righteous are to be living lives that are lives of trust and loyalty and faithfulness. But now, now in verse 18, 17, I mean, we, 18, we move quickly to the dark side. Uh, for the wrath of God, it says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I hope that one thing that you and I can agree on is that we are living in a very dark world. How many things do you see going on every day that a decade ago more so two decades ago, especially 30, 40, or 50 years ago, people would have been appalled at. I remember one day as a young kid going to school, and we walked to school, and the town marshal was there at the corner of the main intersection to make sure we got across because the school was on the other side of the highway. And I remember one of the little kids saying some cuss words. 
And the marshal pulled him aside and had him sit down and escorted him to the school when he was done getting all the kids across. And today, several years ago, I had to turn around and ask some young men sitting at a ball game if they would quit using the language they were using with my wife and daughter sitting right there. We are. We are living in a world that is getting darker and darker every day. Now you've heard people say, well I remember the good old days. Things weren't like this back in the good old days. And they've been saying that with every generation all the way back to Plato. But guess what? They're right. They're right. The truth is that things are getting worse. The reality of the world in which we live is best described by the word devolution, not evolution. Things are slowing down. The sun is losing mass, burning out. Things are not getting more refined, but things are getting more evil. And the question I want to address by means of our text, my point of application this morning for this message has to do with whether or not we truly know God or have in fact fallen to some form of idolatry. And to help us focus, I have three images that I want to share with you. Too often our understanding of idolatry is confined to golden statues, such as the one that I believe here, I believe this one dates back to the Tang Dynasty. But idolatry is allowing anything to occupy the place that only God should occupy. It's allowing anything to take control of us. And so maybe a better image for today might be one that includes the almighty dollar. And I say this with the caveat that the Bible doesn't say that money is the root of evil. It says that the love of money is the root of evil. Man, I am just, I can't go on. What a blessing to see Jake here this morning. Jake just came in with Jordan for our worship. Ah, Money's the root of evil. And when our quest for wealth and things, when our quest for material possessions controls us to the point that it takes precedence over our worship, that's right, over our serving, and the way that happens is people say, well, I just, I don't have time to, to do that. I don't have time to be a part of that. Uh, too busy pursuing wealth and status and power. We've bowed to the idol of prosperity and power. And in reality, as Christians, the shape of our lives should be cruciform. It should be sacrifice. The focus of our life should be on Jesus and what it, that means in terms of the cross. 
Paul would write to the Christians at Galatia, Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And again, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing hostility. So what's the primary problem? Uh, let me say up front that I have borrowed heavily this morning from Michael DeFazio, a friend of mine, an outline that he had. My main points are his main points. Um, he has given me permission because I think he dealt very well with this passage. And uh, in his printed text, he defines the fundamental problem of humanity. He says, the fundamental problem is idolatry. Idolatry. There's a little section of sins that Paul is going through. And when he gets to greed, he pauses and he says, which is idolatry? I, th I think that's interesting. And as we start digging into the text this morning, and, I, and I'm not going to read uh, all the way to verse 32, but as we start digging into the text, I want us to think about if idolatry is the fundamental human problem, and if in fact we are devoluting, not evoluting, then how did we get here? So let's go to God's Word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the create creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. A lot of attempts 
have been made to diagnose the core of our disease. And I believe there is none better than what we've been given right here from the Apostle Paul at the start of Romans. It's actually Paul's most thorough answer. And to see this this morning, we're actually going to look at the text backwards. Uh, I used to love setting up dominoes on their end in some kind of a fancy figure. And then when I was all done tapping one and watching them clink, 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 all the way around that pattern. Sometimes I would get creative and put two next to each other and then they would spread out so that when it hit it, it would divide it and then it would go around until it came back in bed. You don't have to raise your hand. I'm sure others have done that too. I want to use that idea of a domino effect as I look at our text this morning. And as we begin by looking at the end of the passage, I think we see that Paul says people are celebrating evil. You see it every day, don't you? I mean, notice also that actually verse 32 is a kind of a summary of the human perversity that Paul has been describing. And notice that he says, they know. He begins with the knowledge that they have. And he says, they know, but it's not God's truth they know. Paul says it's God's righteous decree. Namely, that those who practice such things deserve to die. He'll write later in chapter 6 verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. They know. But they're, even though they're conscious, usually, sometimes their consciences are so seared it doesn't even bother them. But usually their conscience condemns them. But secondly, not only does he say they know, in that verse he says they disregard that knowledge. They not only continue to do the very things which they know deserve death, but, which is worse, they celebrate that evil by acting, actively encouraging others to do the same. As I said, we're actually starting with the end of Paul's portrayal of the deprived society. And its essence lies in an antithesis of what people know and what they do. Paul himself understood that. At one point he writes, the things I am doing I know I shouldn't be doing, and the things I know I should be doing I'm not doing, oh wretched man that I am. And God's wrath, Paul says, is specifically directed against those who deliberately suppress the truth for the sake of evil. I've shared with you many times, one of the most disheartening things for me is to have somebody that I'm counseling with say, well, I know the Bible says that, but I feel. And then they go ahead and get themselves involved in whatever it is, a relationship or whatever, only to feel the pain of doing what they knew was not right. Paul wasn't exaggerating either. The list that he gives 
is a list that was evidenced by others. Charles Hodge has written that the darkest the picture here is drawn, it's not so dark as that presented by the most distinguished Greek and Latin authors of his day. Paul is writing to a people living in a very dark day, much the same as our own. But how did they get to this point? What was the domino that led to the celebration of evil? And in Paul's description, it was their behavior. He says people were doing evil things. A variety of antisocial practices that Paul says ought not to be done. And it's a list of behavior that we should recognize. A list which describes the breakdown of human community as standards disappear and society disintegrates. Paul gives a catalog of 21 vices. And the type of list that was not uncommon in those days either in the Stoic, Jewish, and early Christian literature. Now, I read a couple different commentators and basically they all said the same thing. That the list actually defies any neat sense of classification. But it begins with four very general sins. People have become filled, he says, with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And then comes five more sins which are they are full of and which all depict human relationships broken down. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. Now, I want to stop here for a second. <coughs> Deceit. Little white lies. But notice what's just two in front of deceit. Murder. You see, in God's eyes, there's not a triage of sin. All sin separates us from God. And then the next couple... Uh, move on to refer to libel and slander. I like the way J.B. Phillips offers a, one of his characteristically imaginative translations. If you never read the J.B. Phillips translation of the New Testament, you, you ought to find one, grab it, and, and read it. J.B. Phillips says, in terms of slander and libel, he says, whispers behind doors and stabbers in the back. And those two are followed by four which seem to portray different and extreme forms of pride. God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. And then before concluding his list, he gives four more negatives. Senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Again, Phillips, without brains, honor, love, or pity. A category full of things that we do and finding others doing. And we do it so much that it, at some point we, we start celebrating it. I know there are a lot of different opinions about the J.K. Rowling books uh, that, that were done. Uh, the uh, 
What was that little guy's name? Harry Potter books. I read a couple of them just so that I could be knowledgeable when people would ask me. By the end of the second one, I was so disgusted I couldn't go on. And it wasn't because of the wicked witchcraft that they were blatantly describing. It was because, for instance, in one case when Harry Potter uh, is sharing with somebody else, they're celebrating the fact that they lied and got away with it. Celebrating the evil. But why, according to Paul, are people behaving in that manner? You see, we've got to go back one more domino. And bluntly, in verse 28, he says it's because their minds have stopped working. Their minds have stopped working. They're not thinking anymore. They're just going by the feelings. In fact, his opening statement in verse 28 stands out in the Greek. Uh, and English translations struggle with it because there's actually a play on words in the Greek language. When he says they did not see fit, they did not think it worthwhile, Paul uses a phrase, ouk et dokimasen. Dokimasen. Ek, ouk ek dokimasen. Then, he uses a noun for the same word, adokimon, when it's tra translated a debased mind. And so basically he's, he's throwing out there two words to catch their attention. He's saying, well, they didn't think it was worthwhile because they didn't have the mind to do it. They had a debased mind. A depraved mind. An unfit mind. A mind that had stopped working that led not only to immorality, but this was a domino that produced the whole variety of antisocial practices. And Paul's point is that sin doesn't make you an adult. It turns you back into a child. Sin doesn't make us smart and sophisticated. It makes us dumb and dumber. And when Paul is describing false prophets and, and teachers, excuse me, when Peter is describing false prophets and teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2, he will describe the unrighteous, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. He'll, defi he'll define them as bold and willful people who do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious one. And then he goes on to say, he doesn't say they're acting, oh, they're just acting like humans. Hear somebody say that? Well, you know, he's just acting like a human. No, Peter says they're acting like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. You see, when we act like that, we are acting in contradiction to the divine image that is within us. Have you ever tried to stop someone who's kind of locked themselves into a, a years-long pattern of sinful living? 
It's like they, they can't even think straight. Because they can't. Because Paul says, God's judging people. God's judging people. In fact, in verses 24 to 28, it's God's judgment on people on their idolatry that would give them up. Three times he uses that phrase. I think it was C.S. Lewis who says there's two kinds of people. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those who God says to people, Okay, Thy will be done. But when he says that, we're going to suffer. We're going to struggle because we're not conforming ourselves to His will. <coughs> the history of the world confirms that idolatry leads to immorality. A false image of God leads to a false understanding of our humanity. And Paul doesn't tell us what kind of immorality he has in mind, except that it involved dishonoring their bodies among themselves. And, not only theologically speaking, but according to statistics, Paul is right. Illicit sex degrades human, the humanness of people. Sex in marriage, as God intended, ennobles it. And in verses 25 to 27, mostly the verses following the text which we read, there's another exchange that's mentioned. They're exchanging the glory of God for images, but the ex they're also exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Indeed, the lie. The ultimate lie. For that's exactly what the falsehood of idolatry is. Since it involves transferring our worship to created things from the Creator. Whom Paul, in a spontaneous doxology, as we concluded the part we read, declares worthy of eternal oration. Who is blessed forever. Amen. To act against nature, which is the aim of the message where Paul is emphasizing the wrongness of same-sex relationships, that they're against nature, it means to violate the order which God has established. Whereas to act according to our nature means to behave in accordance with the intention of the Creator. The intention of God from creation. If you go back to Genesis, and Jesus did, he confirmed it. The intention of God was the creation of male and female. And I love the verse. I use it every time I counsel with a young couple getting ready to get married. It says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united or cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Leave, cleave, and become one. And those are the three legs. I'm going to show my age. Those are the three legs of a milking stool. 
that allow it to be stable. Four legs, you get tottering going on. Two legs, you got to really work at it. Three legs, three points, geometrically speaking, establish a plane. You can put a three-legged stool on almost any surface and it'll be firm. That's the firmness that God intended for us by us leaving. I don't know how many marriages have struggled because the young man or the young woman couldn't properly leave the influence and control of the parents. Cleaving to one another, I said to one of the young couples, I don't know which one's by name, but I'll tell you by description. She was the tall young girl that brought her husband his plate. Uh, and she said that's what the grandma always told us to stay together. And, and the young man said, yeah, that was one of the things we agreed on was that we were going to be together for the long haul. And I shared with them, it's that cleaving. It's not 50-50. And it's commitment. Now, Ann and Dwayne have been married 60 years. We've only been married 25. But I know from our 25, I'm sure that in their 60 years, they didn't always go to bed at night feeling warm and fuzzy toward each other. Because love isn't a feeling. Feeling can be, feelings can be deceptive. Love is a commitment. Remember that old country song where the guy is seeing somebody that he feels like he could have an affair with and he says, well, on the one hand, blah, 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 blah. But then he says, but on the other hand is a golden band that reminds me of the one. He says that what happens is, is that we don't accept the natural order that God has given to us and we rebel against that. Because in the domino effect, what has happened is that we've replaced God. Returning to Paul's original line of argument, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. And even the, the idea of wrath raises questions for people, doesn't it? We tend to think in terms of anger. And so it's asked, well, how can anger, which Jesus equated with murder in the Sermon on the Mount, and which Paul himself identified as a manifestation of our sinful human nature, something that's incompatible with our new life in Christ, how can wrath possibly be attributed to the all-holy God? If we're to preserve the balance of Scripture, our definition of God's wrath has to avoid opposite extremes. On the one hand, there are those who see it as no different from human sinful nature and anger. On the other hand, there are those who declare that the very notion of anger as a personal attribute or attitude of God has to be abandoned. But you see, human anger, although there is such a thing as, un as righteous indignation, human anger is mostly very unrighteous. It's an irrational and uncontrollable emotion that rises up 
It's a first level emotion. In fact, a lot of times we can't control whether or not we get angry. We can only control what we do about it. But God's anger is absolutely free of all of those poisonous ingredients. And the wrath of God, scripturally speaking, is almost is totally different from human anger in that God doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't fly into fits of rage. He doesn't get malicious or spiteful or vindictive. In fact, all of the talk about the revenge of God is pointing to Judgment Day. The alternative to wrath is not love, but neutrality. Neutrality in the moral conflict. And God is not neutral. On the contrary, His wrath is His holy hostility to evil and His refusal to condone it. I've shared it with you before. We're not called to condemn, but we're not called to condone either. We're called to confront. It's not right of me if somebody is doing something that contradicts God's Word and I care about that person, it's not right for me to say, well, that's okay for you if that's what you believe. No. That's as sinful as doing it yourself. We're not to condone what they do. When Jesus was brought the woman caught in the act of adultery, first of all, it was obviously a test. Because if you can catch a woman in the act of adultery, I'll bet you can catch the man too. Right? They only brought the woman. They were trying to test Jesus. What Jesus said. Let the person among you that's without sin cast the first stone. Actually, the person who caught them, who brought them, was to be the one who threw the first stone. And then it says, interestingly, that people started leaving and the oldest ones left first. I know why. Because one of the wisdom of our age is we realize we're pretty sinful. We've done a lot of things wrong in our lives, right? Amen? The oldest ones left first. But when they were all gone, Jesus said to the woman, where are those who want to condemn you? And she said, they're gone. Then what Jesus said? He didn't say, well, everything's okay. No! He said, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. We have a hard time with that. We don't want to offend. You know, I'm, I'm personally getting a little bit tired of living in a world where 99% of the time I have to worry about whether or not I offend somebody. I told the church back in 2004, 18 years ago, we had gone through the whole process. They were wanting to hire us as ministers there. Trial sermon, meet and greet meal, meeting with the committees. All that had to be done was the date of the moving rain showing up and moving us. We had all, both sides of the green. And I get a phone call. Um, you didn't quit your job yet, did you? I said, yeah, I did. I gave him a notice. Well, we have a problem. 
said, well, what's the problem? The problem was the difference in our age. And interestingly, they knew that I had been married and divorced, and Jesse wasn't my first wife. But a couple of the ladies in the church had a problem with the difference in our age. And I told them, I said, you know what? As much as I hate to do this, you need to take my name out. Tom, I decided not to come. Hunt for somebody else. Because I promise you, if you, if those ladies were offended by the difference in our age, I'm going to do something else in the first week or two that offends them even more, probably. We do need to be concerned about the weaker brother. But we in our freedom don't need to be controlled by their putting on us, well, you know, that offends me. Well, get over it. What I'm doing is not right. Grow up. Read the Word. We get angry when our pride has been wounded. But there's not such a thing as that in the anger of God. Nothing arouses the anger of God except evil. And evil always does. And so, there it is. The fundamental problem with the world is humanity. And the fundamental problem with humanity is idolatry. That's our root problem. And idolatry breeds immorality and replaces God with whatever we think is more important. And when we do that, we reap the consequences. But we don't like that. I mean, two years ago, I was 350 pounds. How right would it have been for me at that point to say, if I had a heart attack, well, God, would you let me have a heart attack for? Try to blame Him because of my own physical lack of attention to my needs and my money. As a student, I plagiarize. I know people in high positions of authority plagiarized their way through law school and were still graduated and became real high. Didn't have to pay any real consequences. But I plagiarized my way through and I get caught and I get expelled. Should I get mad at the school system because I have not done what I was supposed to have done? You see, I need to think daily about ways in which I am tempted to be an idolater. We tend to forget that an idol is anything that in any way takes the place of God in our lives. One writer said, you know, there really aren't atheists who don't know that there's a God. Atheists know there's a God. They just don't want there to be a God because if they admit there's a God, that God has a right to say what's right in their life and what's wrong. 
I need to be checking every day with the things that I I love and I trust and I serve and would even be willing to die for. And how they might have become an idol. G.K. Chesterton said that when people stop believing in God, we don't stop believing in nothing. It's that we'll believe in anything. So here's my challenge as we conclude. John Calvin called the human heart an idol factory. Seems to me to be right on the point. So my challenge for you this week and in the days to come is figure out how we can focus on the glory of God. What that means. And stop being idol makers ourselves. Let's pray.